This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. Her name is Brooke Lampley. She was the former head of Impressionist and Modern Art at Christie's. She is the incoming chairperson of Fine Art at Sotheby's. And this is a little off the beaten path of hedge fund managers and economists and traders, um, but it's no less fascinating if you're at all interested in how artwork is determined to have a specific valuation, how we can tell the provenance and and whether or not something is real or not, uh, what takes place at auctions and, and what the future of modern art looks like, I suspect you will find this to be a fascinating conversation. I wish I had it for another hour because I have hundreds of more questions I just didn't get to. But with no further ado, my conversation with Sotheby's Brooke Lampley. My special guest today is Brooke Lampley. She is the incoming vice chairman of the fine art department at Sotheby's, a job she will begin in early 2018. Uh, her undergraduate at Harvard and her master's at Yale were in art history. She did curatorial work at the National Gallery of Art before joining Christie's in 2004, where she quickly became a rising star in the art market, getting named to Crane's 40 Under 40 list. Eventually, she rose to the position of head of the Impressionist and Modern Art Department at Christie's, where she oversaw the sale of more than a billion dollars in Impressionist and Modern Art. Brooke Lampley, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. So now is as good a time as any to talk about what's going on in the art world, but I have to back up a little bit and get a little bit of background about you. Um, undergraduate at Harvard, you're studying art history. Did you have an, any idea you wanted to pursue a career selling art? Annoyingly, I did know for a long time mm -hmm. that I was interested in art. Um, I was quite a bookish kind of nerdy kid. Um, and I came from an artistic family. My mother was a painter. My aunt's an architect. My other aunt works in fashion. Uh, I didn't have any... Um, more conventional career models. I didn't have a lawyer or a doctor or a banker in my family. So when I discovered art history, it was the perfect fusion of my kind of academic um, inclination with an artistic interest. And I loved it. Um, I loved it in high school. Um, I went to college and I actually... I did a joint concentration or major in literature and history of art because I didn't want to solely focus on history of art because um, I highly suspected that that was something that I was going to focus on in my life. Um, so I enjoyed taking a lot of comparative literature classes as well as history of art classes. And I was pretty certain at the end that I was going to apply to art history graduate school. So how do you go from art history to the big auction houses. That's an unusual transition. It wasn't intentional. 
I started out, I really believed that I wanted to be a curator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very academic in my interest. I was reading Art Forum every week, reading like really theoretical, um, out there stuff uh, about art. And that's what I was really interested in. I was really interested in critical theory. Um, I thought that I was going to spend my life writing um, quite esoteric observations on art that um, a very narrow audience might read. Um, But I went to graduate school really young, uh, and I discovered there that I was young, and I didn't have um, a lot of professional experience to inform the career path that I was choosing. Uh, And I started to get some cold feet about the fact that I was going to be there for potentially five years accomplishing my PhD uh, before than having a real work experience. So I took a leave of absence to go work at the National Gallery uh, in a curatorial department. I was working in the Department of Photographs. uh, And I did that to confirm that I wanted to be a curator. And for better or for worse, uh, it didn't work out that way. Uh Um, It's quite, it's a wonderful institution. And the department I was in was doing incredible work at the time. Um, Sarah Greeno had just made it an independent department, uh, moved it out of the administration of the Prince Department. Uh, they were having their, they had recently endowed independent galleries within the museum. So they were having their first full um, schedule of exhibition programming. So um, three temporary exhibitions in the year that I was there. It was full on, um, but it was also highly administrative. Um, and I also, it was the first time that I realized that um, museum work wasn't as free of commercial interest as that's, that's very interesting. I had been given to think. So I felt that when I was in academia, um, there was a very ivory tower sort of division between um the academics and the museum world and the commercial art world. And I was reflexively very disdainful of the commercial art world. And so in order to get away from all of that commerciality in the museums, you end up at Christie's. How did did that happen? I decided to throw it open. I just decided, you know, it was time to see what the commercial art world was all about. And I was attracted to the auction houses particularly because um, it gives a more macrocosmic view of Mm -hmm. the market as opposed to going to a gallery where you might focus on a few artists um, in great depth. And But I looked at – I was just applying to jobs generally. At that point, I wanted to move to New York and have a different job experience. So at Christie's, you discover you have a talent for helping to identify and sell art. Tell us about that a little bit. Well, at Christie's, I really discovered that I loved business as much as I loved art and that I loved the fast pace. I loved the competitive nature. Um, I loved the act of discovery. Um, What you get at the auction houses that you don't get anywhere else is old-fashioned connoisseurship. You're really seeing so much material by an artist. Um, In my prior experience at you know, my academic and museum experience, you were only looking at masterpieces and you never had any context for why something was a masterpiece because you weren't seeing um, the drudgery. You weren't seeing Renoir's sketches. You weren't seeing uh, his smaller paintings or um, vignettes that were then cut down. You didn't really have the full scope. Um, Suddenly at Christie's, I had the full scope. Uh, I got to see so much more. And it was really invigorating. I felt like I trained my eye. 
And that was something that I hadn't truly done before. Um, it, it was a much deeper experience with the art. And um, it was thrilling to be working with people directly uh, and talking to them about, about art all day long in a variety of capacities, whether I'm talking to a seller or a potential buyer uh, or appraising someone's collection. I just talk to people about art. You said something previously that I have to ask you about. You said you learned to train your eye when uh, looking at and appraising art. I explain that a little bit. By looking over years at many, many examples of artworks by particular artists. So I have a field that I focus on, and that's primarily European art from the latter half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. That's my favorite grouping, so. (laughs) It's hard not to be a favorite. It's mine too. Um, But by looking at so many examples by these artists over and over again, you really get a um, instinctual sense Mm -hmm. of authenticity. That's what connoisseurship is. It's the, it's what Malcolm Gladwell is talking about in Blink. It's looking at something and having a gut feeling. Uh, and you only get that by looking at a great range and multitude of examples by a particular artist. 10,000 hours and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of paintings later, when you first see something, is it immediate? I know you, by the way, we'll get to this in our appraisal discussion, the tools of what you use, and it's not just instinct. But after a certain period of time, is it instantly you could look at something and say, that's good, that's not good, that's authentic, that's not? How fast do you make that decision Oh, it's, a- after a decade of practice? Oh, it's 95 to 98% instant. Mm-hmm. There are, of course, exceptions. Um or you know, particularly excellent forgeries or um, things that are troubling um, or juvenilia by an artist that may right. not look exactly like what you expect from the artist. But by and large, you know it's, right it's immediate. And then there are two wavelengths. It's not just the authenticity wavelength. Then there's also the um, commercial appeal instinct that also becomes a reflexive reaction. So so explain that. Uh, every Art is obviously subjective. You, I like this. I don't like that. I love this artist. I can't stand that artist. But what is the... Is the commercial appeal subjective? Or are, obviously we get auction numbers, so we know what the most recent price transaction was. But how subjective is the evaluation of what's the commercial appeal of this particular painting? It's highly subjective, and in as an expert, we learn to dissect and quantify that subjectivity to the degree possible. But mm-hmm. it's also why, at least at the auction houses, we work in teams um, and try to utilize a diversity of opinion to come to a conclusion about something. But generally, yes, I'm looking at something, and I'm saying, wow, this is sensual and romantic and has an incredibly luscious surface and I'm looking at example B which is a very similar picture um, but it's not the same because the color is just not quite as rich and the surface is not quite as thickly painted and that makes an enormous difference in price. 
So I, I read a statistic the other day that, that really shocked me. A recent poll noted that about 60% of wealthy U.S. art owners claim they've never sold a piece from their collection, and about 40% have never even had their holdings appraised. How, how consistent is that with your experiences? That's somewhat unsurprising to me in the sense that in my experience, there are many people who are very comfortable with the appraisal process, and there are some who are just skittish about it, who Mm -hmm. um, don't like the idea that somebody is going to know what they have. Um, Oh, really? And I understand that. Uh, I don't think that, you know, we're in a world where people are concerned about privacy and the privacy. And security, I would imagine. And their data. And uh, I think that's changing. Um, and people are becoming more accustomed to um, needing to share information in order to, you know, receive insurance and services. But um, primarily, people get appraisals for insurance insurance provider, and that's the primary reason. Um, or if they're receiving a loan, for example. Um, and then in terms of selling, yes, many people collect art over their lifetime with no intention of selling it, either until they pass or their children determine that it will be sold or until they gift it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that can be that can be quite common. That certainly used to be, I think, much more common than it is today. So let, let's talk about one of those collections that it appears where there hasn't been a sale over a long, long time. The collection of Peggy and David Rockefeller, some people have guesstimated this, is three-quarters of a billion dollars or, or numbers close to that, um, and have called the upcoming sale of this the sale of the century. What are your thoughts on this Rockefeller collection, and, and what do they actually have? They have some stunning uh, works specifically from the period that I focus on. Um, there are going to be wonderful Monets. There's an there's a sensuous Matisse Odalisque painting from the 1920s that perhaps will reset the market for that artist. Really? Um, when you say reset the market, Matisse is considered one of the grand masters of that era. I mean, how much further can Matisse be reset upwards, or am I underestimating that? He is widely recognized as one of the most important artists of the 20th century, but the market is driven by the examples Mm -hmm. that come to market, and that differs for every artist. So, for example, for Picasso, there have been great Picassos, truly great Picassos that have sold publicly at auction. In in private hands. Yes. As, As opposed to Matisse, where a lot of work is in museums. Or hasn't been sold uh-huh. for whatever reason. So there haven't been equally great examples by Matisse, in my view, that have come to market in the last 10 years. And every decade, the market's changing. So you set a record, for example, you know, a Van Gogh that sold in the 80s would sell for a completely different number today. And that would, in effect, reset the artist market. So it's mm-hmm. not just about completely fresh works. It's about the timing of those works arriving on the market. 30 years is is a long time. There's been a lot of appreciation in the stock market. There's been inflation. One would imagine that these are selling for more. But when you say reset, I'm assuming, hey, this is more than just 8% a year 
um, a little above inflation, this is a whole order of magnitude change. Is that is that what you're suggesting yes. about the Matisse, for yes. example? Absolutely. I think it could double the existing record wow. for the artist. So we started talking about appraisals, and you said earlier you get a sense of a work of art in a millisecond, and that's just a function of a, many, many years looking at thousands of different paintings. But you don't just rely on instinct. Tell us a little bit about the tools of the trade. And I recall you saying flashlight, camera, tape measure, and UV light. What what can a UV light tell you um, outside of CSI? What's What can that tell you about a painting? A UV light typically reveals later stage painting. So that could in some instances even be the artist's own reworking mm -hmm. of their painting later on, which is still important to recognize. But generally speaking, it is a restoration to the painting. And people are, of course, very interested to understand to what degree the original artist's work is preserved mm -hmm. in the painting that they're looking at, mm -hmm. or another hand has helped restore the image to what we believe it should be. And that would affect not so much the authenticity of the painting, but the final valuation. Is that is that a fair statement? There's a range, but generally, yes. It just refers to the condition of the work. So it is a factor on the value of the work, um, but not generally the authenticity. Though, of course, if a work has been broadly repainted and there is very little evidence of the original hand, then... Um, one would argue that that's an authenticity issue mm -hmm. or question. So let, let's talk about authenticity a little bit. You, you've discussed, and we'll discuss provenance, you've referenced attribution is essential. So for a lot of paintings, we could literally trace from the artist painting it to the sale, and that chain of custody goes down right to today. What happens when you are confronted with what you think is a uh, an authentic original but that provenance is missing, that, that custody chain is missing, and there could be decades where it was privately held and nobody knows about it. So I have a great example for this, actually, and it was one of the um, most fun um, things that I've worked on in my career. I, Given that I went to Harvard, uh, I was contacted by a Cambridge local a few years ago. I think this was 2007, and they had a painting that they invited me to come see. And it was a Leger still life from the 1920s. Um, it was 50 inches high. It was radiantly beautiful. And it clearly, to me, was consistent with the work by the artist that I had seen from this period. This is Netra Morta, is yes. that right? Yes. This would be an unusual painting in some senses to copy, not because forgeries of Leger are unusual because they're actually very common. Really? But because of the scale of the work um, and how beautifully painted it is and how reductive the style is, it's particularly difficult um, to forge minimalist paintings very well. Hmm. So I looked at it. And then I learned something even more important, that the person who I was speaking to was a family descendant, a direct descendant of the previous um, Guggenheim director and MoMA curator, James Johnson Sweeney. Mm -hmm. So 
they have no provenance. They had no bill of sale for the work. Um, they had – there is no authenticating body for the artist Leger. So the only resources that we have in the market are the catalog resume and provenance. And this work was not in the catalog resume. Mm-hmm. And – one had to believe that this work would have been given or sold directly by the artist to the curator, James Johnson Sweeney, and that's why it was not featured in the book um, and also why it was, you know, this had to be a proven and plausible history. The one thing that was missing was Leger typically titled, numbered, and dated his works on the reverse of the canvas Mm -hmm. and there was a backing on this painting and that could not be seen and my team and I basically came to the conclusion that as long as this had the inscriptions on the reverse that it would ring true but if it didn't have the inscriptions on the reverse it was implausible and we brought it to New York and we revert, we took the backing off the painting. And there, beautifully, perfectly, as we wanted to believe it would be, was exactly the style of signature and inscription and titling on the reverse that we have come to expect from Leger in this period. And we were able to sell the work. It was estimated at, I believe, 3 to $5 million wow. and sold for $8 million. Uh, and it was... Stunning success. That's fantastic. So I'm a car guy, and we call um, the occasional find garage finds where there's some old Porsche Ferrari that's gathered dust for 30 years. Literally, the son went off to to Vietnam, didn't come back. The parents couldn't sell the car. It's worth many times more than what was paid many years ago. Not too long ago, I read about a, a garage find somewhere in the Midwest of a Jackson Pollock. Someone had called somebody in to authenticate like a $300 um, sports piece of memorabilia. And in the pile in the garage at the bottom is this Jackson Pollock. At this point in the world with the Internet and everything else, how realistic is it that great works of art are buried in people's attics or garages or what have you? It's still uncommon as much as we'd all like to believe it will happen to us. But – What needs to be understood is that we now live in the information age, so we assume that there is a clear archive of historical data associated with every artwork that Mm -hmm. is available to us, and it's just not true. Yes, if you're buying a contemporary artwork, that should be able to easily be traced back to the dealer and the artist, and if you can't do that, well, then um, you should be out of luck because that should be so easy. That information chain should be unbroken. But for as recently as the early 20th century, the information chain is definitely broken for so many artists. There are so many artists for whom we have incomplete archives or the dealers didn't preserve um, their journals and their invoices well enough for us to have a complete picture of sales. And so for the dealers who did do that in the early 20th century, it's a huge boon Mm -hmm. to the market. Or, for example, the fact that Picasso um, was quite – logical in um, he codified a lot of his work. He numbered and dated almost everything. He also cooperated in uh, the publication of a fairly thorough book 
uh, a catalog resume of his very extensive production. These these are huge market tools. I remember when 60 Minutes had Picasso on, and in the back of his property is a, a barn literally filled with hundreds of his work. I don't remember which um, correspondent was interviewing him. It might have been Leslie Stahl. And she says, aren't you concerned? You have thousands of these works that are worth millions of dollars. Anyone could steal them. They're, they're invaluable. And his answer was, not until I sign them. And I always was very much amused by that. But how realistic is that? Someone steals a Picasso from a, his garage that's unsigned. Is there any value there? There are unsigned works. Um, and for every artist, actually, there are works that generally remained in the studio and were unsigned. Unfinished, unsigned, or unloved? Or some combination. Well, that's that's also for a subjective. Mm -hmm. There is an opinion to that um, whether un unsigned and unfinished are the same, and whether that is that is different for every artist. Uh -huh. It's unstable. It's not a direct equation. But um, there is value. There's definitely value. It's just like anything. It's a factor on the value, and so everything is an exponent on the artwork itself. Makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about some of the auctions and things that are going on uh, in the world of art today. And we would be remiss if we did not discuss that giant Da Vinci sale uh, a few weeks ago. Tell us about that. Does $450 million make any sense for a Da Vinci work that, let's be honest, not his best day in the studio? Here's how it makes sense. The market, the art market is definitively shaped right now by individuals who are aligned with institutions or creating institutions. Mm -hmm. The fusion of the institution and the individual is hugely powerful at the top end of the market. So the way I see it, there could be no greater attraction for the Louvre Abu Dhabi. Mm -hmm. There is no greater single object that they could add to their collection to make that institution make sense, especially in its pendant relationship to the Louvre in Paris, right. than a painting by da Vinci. There and are, what, 20 or less examples? There of... are fewer than 20 mm -hmm. paintings that exist in the world all of them in museums. And all of them just utter masterpieces. Is that is that a fair statement or am I overstating it? I I wouldn't personally attest that they're all utter masterpieces because mm -hmm. I haven't seen every single one of them. What are you doing? You travel so much. <laughs> Shouldn't you do like a Da Vinci World Tour? That I would think that's I what you do I could actually quit my job and do a Da Vinci World Tour right. probably. That should be that's the my full-time job. Between college and grad school. That's a... Uh, <laughs> In the hierarchy of works by Da Vinci, from The Last Supper, and I, I'm not a Mona Lisa fan, so that I don't put that at the top of, of the heap. It's kind of small, and there's a weird history of it being stolen, which is what made it so famous. But where does this current piece rank, and is it $450 million because it's a Da Vinci, and any Da Vinci would have gone for that for this museum? Or there is, a, is there an inherent value that I'm completely missing? 
No, it's a notional value based on it being a da Vinci. Scarcity. It has almost nothing to do with the object itself. That's... I really don't believe that um, the people who were pursuing this object cared deeply about how it looked huh. uh, or the condition of the work. Um, I, And that's that's fine. That's their right. Uh, but the object... The value of this object is founded almost entirely in the fact that there is no other Da Vinci painting that you can ever acquire. None of these and other 16 or 17 are coming up for sale. You're They're never going to be able to buy one. That's it. They're and never... there's such a premium in the market, in the world, for paintings over works on paper. If you could ever have something, it would be perhaps a pencil drawing. Right. And, and he did lots and lots of drawings. And people want paintings so much more. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So let's talk about some of your favorite paintings. We mentioned uh, the Legere uh, that that you sold. Let's talk about La Femme d'Agère by Picasso, which is, I think, a lovely work that went for lots and lots of money. Tell us about that. That was a stunning painting. It is a work that had previously been an auction in the Gans sale in 1997. So it was interesting that it was not the first time that it was ever appearing on the market. And what did it sell for in 97? Because I want to tee up the surprise ending. $33 million. All right. So not an insubstantial amount of money, but 20 years, less than 20 years later, it went for how much? $180 million. That's a lot of money. And that's a lot of appreciation. What changed in that not even 20 years, to make that rise sixfold? First of all, there's just general inflation. Because if you just do the math on the but not market 600%. over that time, it would have um, multiplied significantly. But it's also the power of the painting is staggering. Right. This is a... It's a big work, isn't this it? This is unlike the painting we were previously talking about. Uh -huh. This is a seminal painting. This is a fully realized complex, multi-figure, rich abstraction. It is balancing, um, it is walking the fine line in Picasso's work between abstraction and figuration perfectly. It's incredibly colorful, dense. It just really shows off both his painterly prowess and his tight draftsmanship because it is a very architecturally designed, fractured, painting. So it's just, it's Picasso. It's the epitome of Picasso. And what you have in those intervening years is you no longer have a largely Western-driven market for great Western art. You have a global market for great Western art. You have people from every part of the world competing for the best Picasso. So, so that's Asia, especially China, South America, and Brazil, and of course, the Middle East. Let's talk about another Picasso. I, I, my French is not as good as it should be, um, but Painter and Model is another, um, is the English translation, is another work that, that you, I believe, helped bring to auction. Am I, am I correct in that recollection? There are the only thing about that is the Painter and Model was a very popular series um, or a series that Picasso pursued for mm -hmm. um, a period in the 60s. So there are a number of them. So How many of those did you help I've, sell? I've worked on – I probably sold 10 Painter and Model Really? Paintings. There's mm -hmm. that many of them? Wow. Yeah. All right. So we mentioned Picasso, Legere. 
let's talk about the grain stack by Monet, which everybody has seen. They're they're fairly seminal. Um, it's the Notre Dame series and the grain stack series. Tell us about that. What was that sale like? That was a real highlight for me. I had seen that painting for many years. He's I, done a few of those, a number of studies and and various versions. But there hadn't been one on the market for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And in that time, in that intervening 15 years, there had been a huge surge in prices for water lily paintings. Mm -hmm. And that had essentially moved the market, the modern market or the contemporary market for Monet is all about the profundity and abstraction of the serial pictures, whereas the market for Monet 20 years ago was all about the classicism and clarity and beauty of the 1870s Impressionist pictures. Mm -hmm. So the market for Monet has completely changed over 20, 30 years. And during this course of time, we have a 15-year gap between the last haystack coming to market and this one. So... We knew that there was an opportunity here. Um, we did not know exactly what the market tolerance or um, the benchmark Appetite. price would mm -hmm. be for a haystack. And and tell us how that transaction worked out. So I believe the bidding opened at around fifty or fifty-five million dollars. Mm -hmm. The work ultimately sold for eighty million dollars. Not too shabby. I was on the phone with the direct underbidder, and. It was a fight. It was a real duel till the end, and they were very disappointed um, because it was a staggeringly beautiful picture that not only really bridges this important period of art impressionism, but also can be situated perfectly in a contemporary or modern collection. So let's talk about a, a few others that you've brought to market. Modigliani, Van Gogh, Giacometti. Tell, tell us about an example of each. And P.S., I don't mean to downgrade these artists in any way. We could talk about any of the billions of dollars of artwork you helped sell, but for time's sake, I just want to, to reference these three together. Well, Modigliani is remains one of the most fascinating artists to bring to market today because of the profound scarcity of his production. He died young um, and really at his at the peak of his artistic power. So you'll never know. His, his biography really fits into the mythology that people, much like Van Gogh as well, um, like to associate with great artists. Um, and the tortured soul who dies young is that is that what we're uh... yes and you never um, perhaps got to see their fully realized greatness mm -hmm. we can only imagine how much we got to see Picasso live a full life and see what he how his art changed decade over decade and there's a great fascination in that um, but there is an equally great fascination in the curtailed genius mm -hmm. in the genius that never came perhaps to complete fruition. Where would his art have gone? And with Medigliani, you have beautiful portraits, stately portraits. We've sold a range. We've sold great male portraits and that exceeded our expectations because the market is so impoverished of Medigliani um, that people are truly thrilled or excited by any examples 
that come up and really will chase them. It's another scarcity issue. There's only so many, and if you want one, you're going to pay up. That, and then, of course, we sold, in my time at Christie's, the Marquis Medigliani, the best Medigliani you're ever going to get, a reclining female nude. And, and what did that go for? $173 million. Not, Not too shabby. We have been speaking with Brooke Lampley. She is the former head of Modern Art and Impressionists at Christie's, soon to be the vice chair of Fine Arts at Sotheby's. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast Extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things art-related. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Brooke, thank you so much for doing this. I, I am fascinated by the topic and really want to delve into so many more questions. And I don't know whether to pick up with uh, Giacometti, Van Gogh, and Brancusi, or let, let's let's talk about the question I would imagine is on a lot of people's minds is, how investable is art? Because everything we've been talking about has been, forget Da Vinci, what, what did we say, there were 17, 16 paintings? 16. Uh, when, when, and then even if you go to as prolific as Picasso and, and to a lesser degree Monet have been, there's still only a finite number of those works. And when we look at the modern world, and I don't mean modern painting, I mean 2018 painting from artists that are working today and selling their works, how investable are those works? Is it the sort of thing that we're going to, a century from now, those are going to be the next $100 million paintings? Or has the golden age of art production kind of come to an end and everything going forward is something different? It's a funny thing. You know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Mm -hmm. So I think we look back at our view of the art market of eras past uh, and the works that we're still selling today um, is defined by a selection process that's mm -hmm. already happened. And today, we're faced with how we make that selection process in real time. Mm -hmm. Surely, a great number of the artists working today will be valuable in the future. But if I had a crystal ball to know exactly who those would be and who they wouldn't be, then I would, you know, I would quit what I'm doing and uh, just do that full time. Well, you still need so, the capital to go out and spend, even even at five and ten thousand dollars a painting. I so I'm doing that to some degree myself. I'm interested in that, but I really believe I can't help but be wooed in the stories, in the people I've met, by the people who collected with their hearts, just for the love of it. With a passion, and that passion stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. I think time and again you hear and see that people who really cared about what they were looking at and 
collected with a view to that level of quality um, that the market rewarded them because at the end of the day, that's what we all care about and that's also what drives the market is the quality. So so how how much of that is the luck of the era? And let me rephrase that. So we mentioned earlier the Rockefeller collection from from David Rockefeller that here's a person who inherits his fortune in the mid 20th century so he's got the previous hundred years of works that we now know are worth hundreds of millions of dollars tens of millions of dollars Um, but he's buying what he and his wife like he's buying what's available he's buying um, what is actually up for sale and uh, 100 years later, 50 years later, it's it's an enormous collection. If we were to do the exact same thing today, somebody inherits a few billion dollars and they start buying what they like uh, over the next 50 years, what are the odds that what they pick up over the next few decades are going to appreciate the way uh, the Impressionists, the early modernists? Because when we look at the arc of history of painting, we're now in a totally different sort of zone than what's developed over the past previous few centuries. But I think we still need to recognize that even when the Rockefellers were acquiring... So it's interesting. It was a mix of historical and contemporary Mm -hmm. art. I think those prescient Picasso and Matisse uh, choices that people made when these people were still actively producing works um, were incredibly wise and wonderful selections, but they were pretty much, you know, they were already established artists. They were, this is like buying a Richard Serra, okay? This isn't buying, um, you know, an artist down in Chelsea who is having their first gallery show. This is buying a very well-regarded, a Jeff Koons, someone who is, has already been shown in museums right. and already has a commercial uh, following and established collecting base. Um, so I believe what the Rockefellers did, and there are many other examples, though not to the same degree, yes, yes, that will prove valuable time and again. If you were able to go out today and buy career, mid-career examples by already established artists and you sell that in 50 years I do believe in that value there's I there's no question in my mind but I think the greater question is how you buy truly contemporary art and so how 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 do you and for that I think um, the people who have been most successful are people who had some kind of governing philosophy or um, metric. So whether that be I'm buying German photography from the 1980s, Mm -hmm. I'm buying women artists of earlier historical periods, I'm buying um, great Cuban art from the 1950s, whatever it may be, um, the people who really dedicate themselves to some sort of theme and they by the virtue of collecting in that theme are already they are working in tandem with their collection they're enhancing the value because 
they are creating a a story, a narrative. Um, they're creating the category essentially for people to follow. Mm-hmm. So, how does one determine? This is a tricky question. So, whether you're looking at contemporary art that's being painted today, or finding a niche such as 1950s Cuban or 1920s um, German photography, how do you determine what is a realistic valuation when you're making a purchase? Because there really isn't a whole lot in the way of comparables. You're kind of figuring out some number, but it seems to be, I don't want to say random, but really subjective and in a tremendously broad potential range, if that makes any sense. Oh, it's incredibly difficult. And this is why people love auction. Auction and the secondary market provides the security of um, comparables of a market history and some parameters for pricing that are based on um, historical data. But when you go to a gallery, there is no data. There is no context. It's just what they're pricing it at. And you have to make an evaluation that is really subjective about whether you think something is worth that value. Now, of course, you're welcome to ask the dealer, and you should, um, what the pricing history has been for the artist, what you know previous shows they've had, um, if they can give examples of other sales that can bolster the information that you have. Um, but that market is essentially untested until someone tries to resell their work. So a challenge the auction houses face very often is um, people, artists used to contact me all the time wanting to sell their works directly through the auction house. And I'd say, I'm sorry, this is a bit of a chicken and an egg, right. but you, we don't really sell anything that hasn't already been sold. We need there to be a track record. That's the floor at the very least. So let's talk a little bit about the auction process. I was surprised to read that a lot of these lots go off in a matter of seconds or, or barely minutes, because when we see something like that Da Vinci, it was seven or eight minutes of bidding and it got frenetic and crazy. What is the typical auction process like? How do you determine how uh, what the starting price is and how long do the actual bidding process take? It's a great question because it's hugely variable. So watching the Da Vinci sale, I think it was actually 15 minutes of bidding, and that's a really long time in the auction room. And I'm not sure what the record is, but it may be up there um, for a single lot. Every lot is... The auctioneer has a tremendous amount of discretion. Mm -hmm. Going into an auction, which is a live auction, which is its state... You know, for the purpose of this conversation, live auctions, the auctioneer will sit down and look at something called the auctioneer's book before the auction and think about where they would like to start the bidding on each lot based not just on where the reserve price is, because most lots offered at you know, Christie's or Sotheby's, say, have reserves. which Meaning is, if it doesn't hit that price, it doesn't get sold. It's the confidential minimum below which the work will not be sold. Mm-hmm. But... In addition to the reserve, the other information that they may be considering is how many phone bidders have signed up to bid on the lot, how many um, internet bidders are registered for that lot if somebody's left an absentee bid. So if you have a lot of competition on the lot, you would probably start higher and closer Mm -hmm. to the reserve than if you have nobody, you might start 
further away from the reserve and chandelier bid more, give yourself more room. What does that mean, chandelier bid? So the auctioneer in New York State can legally bid on behalf of the auction house, so essentially fake bid Uh up until the reserve, so that if someone comes in and bids $10,000, but the reserve is $18,000, the auctioneer will bid against them in an effort to entice them to bid up to 18000 Because if it doesn't hit reserve, it doesn't get sold. So it's a harmless process, and it perhaps moves a sale. And it also protects the confidentiality of the reserve, mm-hmm. because what is less effective is to just say, OK, 17000 Does anyone <laughs> want to bid eighteen? And everybody's just waiting and looking at each other to see if anyone will bid. Right. That would discourage people from bidding. Right. Because they would wait and let the work not sell and then try to make a cheaper offer what, after. What is, and does that happen if something doesn't go for reserve? There's the option. So, again, my frame of reference is automobiles. It's the same thing. The auctioneer says reserve is met, or the auctioneer says, says uh, reserve is withdrawn. This is a car that's going to sell. And lo and behold, very often that runs the price up. What is the bidding process like? Um, in terms of increments, what is it like beyond the reserve once we know that a, a sale is taking place? So the increments are fairly standardized. Mm-hmm. Um, they go in fives or ones between one and two, twos between two and three, zero, two, five, eight, ten between three and five, and then fives above that between five and ten um, in all iterations um, in hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands. But um, the bidder can always request a smaller increment. They can always try to break the bid. Um, meaning, break the bid meaning, is that what we saw with the Da Vinci going up in $3 million lots when they could have gone up in $1 or $2 million lots? Well, with the Da Vinci, it was particularly unusual and very interesting. Um But yes, essentially, the bidder can determine their own bid at the auctioneer's discretion. Mm -hmm. Then the auctioneer might try to control. um, The bid increment is their greatest control over the momentum of Mm -hmm. the auction. So the only reason they don't want the bid increment to break down is because they want um, there's no reason if you have multiple bidders to work in very small in- increments. Right. Um, but with the Da Vinci, it was fascinating because the direct underbidder was always bidding $2 million. And the next bidder, the eventual buyer, bid $8 million each time and then eventually made like a $30 million bid. So they were kind of saying – Dude, give it up. I'm taking this home, and you can't keep it. They were communicating through their bidding strategy. And yet the underbidder continued to come along thinking, so is that a little bit of poker? They're, they're, hey, this guy is bluffing at $8 million a pop. I'm going to stay in. I thought it was their own demonstration of determination. I thought it was really interesting. I thought the direct underbidder was even more interesting than the um, the buyer because of their resilience in saying, you won't move me. I was a little um, deflated that yeah. they, they didn't win that battle at the end. because And we don't know who the underbidder was. No one stepped forward and said, yeah, that was me. No, nobody has identified themselves. So I guess at this time I can reveal. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> le- so that that's kind of fascinating. 
it sounds like there is this very specific set of rules and a very specific um, dynamic to the bidding process. How does somebody who is, you know, there's a lot of, I hate the word nouveau riche, but there's a lot of new money. Let's say you're a Bitcoin millionaire and you want to go buy some art because Bitcoin can be lost, but the art, at least you can insure it. How does someone learn on some of these 10 and $20 million or more paintings, how do you learn how to engage and behave at an auction? You talk to me. Is <laughs> That's that, what I'm here for. So, so but, if you're working for the auction house, who you know obviously is incentivized to maximize the price on behalf of the seller, how do you assist the buyer? You're, it, with a house, the real estate agent is usually the seller's agent, Unless you go out and get a buyer's agent, you're fighting, you know, fighting um, or negotiating with someone who isn't working on your behalf. If you're at the auction house and I say, hey, I really have a thing um, for Brancusi and I want Brooke to help me uh, find one, how does that work with you and the auction house if the auction house is representing the seller? It is tricky that we work on both sides. Um, my response to that would be that the market is repetitive and cyclical. Relationships are long. I'm not interested in a short-term relationship with a client. I'm mm -hmm. not interested in overselling them on one object um, to the detriment of what our long-term relationship would be because I have so much art to sell um, more than four times a year. I have so much art to sell right. <laughs> all the time. We have so much on offer. The market is so voluminous, um, so transaction heavy right now, um, that it's really in my interest to help someone find the right thing and have them be happy. Um, also because in my line of work, I work, as you mentioned, with both buyers and sellers. So every prospective buyer is a future seller. Right. So I want them to be happy with their purchase because if they're going to sell it someday, I want them to come back and talk to me. Um, but the other answer would be that there are lots of independent advisors in the art world who are full-time, um, who are consultants, who um, would love to make themselves available to people to um, advise them on transactions and you know how to work with an auction house. Um, the only thing is, as with any industry, you know they they take a commission, mm -hmm. um, and I take no commission. To so you're working you. for the house, and the house is taking their pound of flesh, but your your job is to just make everybody happy and look look for repeat business. Related to the auction, I have a couple of other questions I don't want to forget. So something doesn't get sold, and it doesn't meet the reserve or whatever, and it isn't sold then and there. You're suggesting, hey, these auction houses eventually become giant galleries with warehouses full of stuff to be sold. Even if it's not being sold at auction, it may be sold at some other non-auction date. Do I, do I have that right? So everything that happens after the auction is... Um, variable and at the seller's discretion. Mm -hmm. The first thing that happens is um, we will generally accept offers, after-sale offers, for things that didn't sell. Not not like the day after you're talking 
weeks or even months no, later? No, immediately after. Okay. Maybe in the hours after. Usually oh, really? for three days to uh-huh. five days maybe after the auction. So, But once a week goes by, that's it. It's done? It's probably it's probably too late. We so accept- I, miss, I miss purchasing something at the last auction, but I'm... You know, it's been on my mind for a few months, and I call up Brooke and say, hey, remember that Monet that didn't sell? Um, I'm interested in pursuing that. How? How? What can we do? Can Can you reach out to the seller? Do things like that? Happens all the time. Really? And there is no limitation. I definitely can, and I will when it's appropriate. And Generally, then the auction house gets paid their normal pound of flesh anyway if they facilitate the transaction? It would be then classified as a private sale. Mm-hmm. Um, we do non-auction transactions as well. What's the balance the typically? Is it, How much is auction and how much is non-auction? I'm kind of curious about well, that. It's changing all the time. I think the last statistics um, for Christie's in 2016 um, were 25% of were, were business were non-auction. But I could, I'm not sure if I'm utterly correct that, about that. that. That sounds about ballpark, right? That, but that... it's it's a growing sector of the business. Um, there's Because really... Um, what everybody's realizing is that while we all know the gross auction revenues of the auction houses year on year, uh-huh. and they fluctuate, say, between Christie's and Sotheby's together in the last 10 years, it's been anywhere from 10 to $15 billion a That's year. Amazing. Um, but then there's a whole nother potentially $45 billion worth of art being sold every year that is outside of that. There's a lot more market to capture. Are you familiar with Artsy? Yes. So Rich Barton is the person behind Expedia and Zillow and Glassdoor. And this new site he's developed, he's co-founded, is below everything we see at, at auction, is a huge market of art that doesn't really have a way to be tracked and, and transacted. Is, is that potentially the next larger wave of art sales? I think digital is going to transform the art world. Transform. That's, that's a big word. I don't think it's necessarily outside of the auction houses. I think um, it's already happening. There are in, increasingly um, digital auctions taking place um, or sales online at both Christie's and Sotheby's as well as other auction houses as well as other online platforms. And yes, what I've seen is that there is a remarkable appetite to buy things online at much greater price points than I think people would fathom. Um, And we should know because I buy everything else in my life online. So um, clearly, we're all getting much more comfortable with buying online, and that is now extending significantly into the luxury space. That, that makes sense. Amazon is now 20 years old. So when we talked earlier about uh, uh, about provenance and fraud, I read a crazy statistic somewhere that said that art theft and fraud, and I, they didn't break it out, is $6 billion a year? Is, is that number remotely plausible that seems like an insane wow that's um that is significant that's shocking to me i wouldn't know i am fortunate 
that were not really directly involved. We do see people bring us forgeries, right? Um, but we don't because we try to avoid them and refuse them and not price them. Um, we're not really quantifying that space. So, so as unthinkable as it is, hypothetically, a non-original slips through and gets auctioned off. And then subsequently, as we've discovered recently with a handful of not auction houses, but galleries, people have sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of stuff. That's that's forgeries. Does the auction house stand behind the provenance of what they sell, or is it simply they're facilitating a transaction and not making any sort of guarantee? No, there's a warranty. There's a five-year warranty. And um, I believe that's standard in the industry. Which and says that this is if this is sold as a Picasso, it's a Picasso. The warranty is specifically on the attribution of the work. Mm-hmm. It's um, pretty much um, not about anything else. It's not about the condition. It's right. not about um, other specifics. I mean, surely if we said the work was 51 by 30 inches and it turned out to be, you know, two by three inches, um, that would be included. But, but I mean, it, it's if it's really all half an inch, nobody cares. It's it is by the artist as as claimed. it's either by the artist or not. That's the issue, and it's a five year warranty. But beyond that, um, there's significant reputational hazard. You know, it would be a serious issue for either auction house in has, any case. Has any of these come up in the past twenty years where something was sold, discovered to be not who it was supposed to be by, and the auction house made good? Absolutely, it happens, um, and. Generally and hopefully, not usually at the um, you know Upper Da Vinci end. and right. Picasso Femtalger level, but it happens um, when there are changes in scholarship or what we call in the industry expertise. Um, there are authenticating bodies for a lot of these artists, particularly in the in, in Family, my field in impressionist and modern yeah. art. Um, in France, the droit moral um, it is a legal right authentication on behalf of one of these artists is a legally appointed or given right in France. So um, when these, when this changes hands, when um, different scholars take over and perhaps change the view that was given 10 years ago, um, that can be an issue that is brought back to an auction house. And I keep coming back to Jackson Pollock. I recall an issue with I don't remember if it was a, a girlfriend or a mistress. It was a painting that was supposedly gifted to her, or then was it by her? And is this a $50,000 painting or a $50 million painting? How do these sorts of things get resolved? Or do they remain unresolved? And, hey, you want to take a chance for $50,000? Maybe you're getting nothing. Maybe you're getting a $10 million Pollock. Is it that open-ended? So all roads lead back to Da Vinci. Mm -hmm. The Da Vinci is a great example. The Da Vinci is a painting that in 2005, I believe, was um, purchased at a very small regional auction house and um, after extensive research was re-attributed to Da Vinci. It was not attributed to Da Vinci at that time when it was purchased for, 
I think, $10,000. So what is most incredible in the story of this Da Vinci is that a work of this importance by such a famous artist would have been so recently rediscovered and reattributed to the artist. And the way that that happened was that there was um, an important exhibition at the National Gallery of Art in London in, I want to say, 2010. Um, But in addition to scholarship that was done um, by the purchaser and just generally in the field, um, through this exhibition, a consensus was able to be established among leading scholars in the field um, and communicated to the world at large through this exhibition that this is now known as a da Vinci. Um, that's essential. It's That's where the commercial and the academic worlds really converge. We do not rely on ourselves as a sole arbiter because clearly we have a commercial incentive sure. to sell. So we look to academics and we look to a scholarly community to make these attributions. How often does do we see a major change in attribution like that, where something literally goes for $10,000 to half a billion dollars? I mean, that's a, forget the price, how often do we discover a da Vinci that we previously didn't think was a da Vinci? And I don't mean just with that artist, I mean any major artist from Picasso to Monet to Rothko to whatever. Hardly ever, what is much more common rather than adding works into the canon, is that there are works that are excluded from the canon that could potentially be real. Mm -hmm. So you have any number of people who own Medigliani's today um, coming around, clamoring, saying, I have all of this information, this is a real Medigliani, um, and you have a bunch of experts in the art world or commercial experts saying, I'm really sorry, I can't help you because there is no universally recognized expert in the field for Medigliani right now. There are some people competing for that um, kind of status and position. And hopefully, perhaps one day we will have someone who we all recognize. But right now, there are a lot of people who own Medigliani's who can't be helped. Those could be good value purchases because they're not uh, – or or could be a waste of money unless you really like it. Let me get to some of my favorite questions. Tell us the most important thing people don't know about your background. I think it's the fact that I grew up in London from the time I was 12 until I went to college. No accent whatsoever. Because I would never have guessed that. I have no accent, so nobody And Madonna was know. there for a weekend, and she ended up with a British accent. Bingo. This is always what I say. So the reason I don't have an accent is because people would show up from, like, Austin and two days later have an accent, and we'd say, who are you, Madonna? Like, <laughs> That's funny. Tell, tell us about some of your early mentors. I was really fortunate, as I mentioned before, to not have a family where I was expected to follow a conventional career path. Uh, I would say that my father was an early influence. He is a sportscaster. He's had the privilege in his life to do something that he loves. And he really made me feel that it was possible to do something that I love as a career. That That's a, uh, a, a really interesting history. Tell us about who influenced your approach to working in the world of art and and the commercial side of it. A lot of people. I've worked with so many great people. Um, I really enjoyed working with Stephen Murphy, the previous or a recently previous CEO of Christie's. Uh, he was someone who was a really inspirational leader 
and um, created great opportunities for me at an important moment in my career. What are some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, about art, or anything else? And and by the way, this is everybody's favorite question. They re, Listeners want to learn about new books or books they may not be familiar with. I fear my answer won't be surprising enough then. Uh, I am a great lover of fiction, of great novels. Um, I am, you know, the corrections, um, great, like, meaty. Right now, what am I reading? Um, I'm reading The Knicks. Um, Who wrote that? If I could only remember. It's, like, a first-time novelist, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, Any favorite art books? There are many to choose from. The Life of Picasso is pretty good. Uh, John Richardson, you can't beat The Life of Picasso for being not only informative, but saucy and gossipy and scintillating. Mm -hmm. Picasso's life is richly entertaining. And give us one more uh, fiction that you're reading. Oh, I have, if I could only, oh, I read um, A Little Life. Who didn't love that book? It was devastating. A Little Life. All right, let's talk about changes in the art market. What is different today than 20 years ago? And and is this a good thing? So many things. It's so much more global mm-hmm. as a marketplace, and that's definitely a good thing. It um, It puts, it changes the way that we appreciate art. And we're now seeing or exposing and um, publicizing great regional works um, almost to the same degree that we are great examples of the canon sort of overall. I think that there was um, a much more Western perspective in the past. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from that. I was challenged by working at a museum in my early career and it was a surprise to me at the time um, because it wasn't that the work was hard in fact it was that I wanted to work harder but there wasn't a place for it there at that moment and it was I was really limited by the fact that I hadn't completed my PhD in terms of what type of work I was engaged to work on Um, And that was part of what motivated me to work in a more commercial, business-minded environment because it felt more meritocratic. I wanted to work hard, and I wanted to work somewhere where that was um, innately valued. You have a fun job. Tell us what you do for fun outside of the office. I have two kids, so that's pretty full-time in my non-working time. Um, two kids under the age of five, two boys. Um, so I get a lot of exercise just hanging out with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also like to spin. What sort of advice would you give somebody who's a millennial or recent college grad if they came to you and said, hey, I am interested in a career in the world of art? So I have that conversation a lot, uh, and I always look forward to it because I try to be more candid than I feel either people were with me or actually I think I just didn't ask enough. <laughs> and um, it's usually, you know what, this isn't any easier than any other field. You have to really love it 
there's a scarcity of opportunity here. It's an oversubscribed career path. There are so many people coming out of school with art history degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do love it, then take any job that you can get and keep going and it, it will inform your next step. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of art today that you wish you knew back in 2004 when you were first getting started? Well, that's such an interesting one. I speak Mandarin. Oh, really? <laughs> I I was I wanted to learn Japanese as a kid. Um, and because I thought it was an interesting culture, not because I was so business minded. Um, but there's there are incredible opportunities in the art world right now in regional markets. Especially Asia? Particularly China. You were in London. Did you want to spend more time in Asia? What what would you have done different if you had a perfect, other than collecting certain works, what would you have changed in your career path had you known uh, how the future would unfold? No, I think I could do what I do, but also connect. Uh, I, it's very difficult to connect authentically with collectors um, without speaking their language. That and makes... that makes perfect sense. Um, and I respect that. But if I want to really help collectors in any other part of the world, um, I need to speak their language. That, that's quite interesting. We have been speaking with Brooke Lampley. She is the incoming chair of Fine Arts at Sotheby's. Uh, Thanks, Brooke. Thank you so much for doing this. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Overcast, uh, or Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you could see any of the other 170 or so such conversations that we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff who helps us put together this conversation. Taylor Riggs is my booker producer. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.